0: Um, that's what we're doing this morning. So, I want to draw your attention now to 2 Timothy uh, 3. I want to begin reading at verse 10 uh, to the end of the chapter. Uh, Let's listen to these words uh, written by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Spirit uh, to all of us, but especially to a young pastor. You, that is Timothy, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, Deceiving and being deceived, but as for you, continue in what you have learned, and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Especially uh, these last two verses, verses 16 and 17, all Scripture is breathed out by God. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So we're going to be looking at the role of Scripture, that is, the role of the Bible in what we call our spiritual formation. That is, the role of the Bible in leading us to Jesus, understanding who Jesus is, His person, His work, and also the place of the Bible in uh forming us into the image or the likeness of christ because i hope that's why you're here this morning that's why you come to worship every sunday so that you might grow in christ and if you're not in christ that you would be led to a true knowledge and love uh, for him now these these last two verses that i read or at least, no they're not up there anymore can you put them up again the, the, the passage, um, go to the, yeah, there you go, all right. If you take a look at verses 16 and 17, and if you've been raised in the church and in the Christian faith for many years of your life, you'll, you'll oftentimes think of those verses as somewhat of a, what I would call a, a proof text for, for the, the, the important doctrine of the Bible called the Doctrine of Inspiration. And, you know, a lot of times when people think of an inspired book, they think of writers writing that book, and they were inspired to write something good and profitable for people, something that they would enjoy. But the Bible, that's not what the Bible means by by inspiration. We talk about inspiration, that word there, which is the word, um, sounds funny, kids, in in the original language, which is the Greek language, but it's the word theopneustos, which literally means, when you break it down into the English language, it means literally God breathed or God expired. So kids, if you, were, if you were outdoors this past week, you know it was rather cold. And if you go out into the cold night air, you go, right? And you can see your breath. You know, when we were little kids, we would, we would think, yeah, it would be kind of cool. We always kind of go like like we were smoking cigarettes, right, when you're eight or nine years old, you know. That's what you do when you're a kid. And so when you look at the the cold night air, you, you breathe it out, you can see your breath. When you think of the Bible and you think of the beginnings of the Bible, think of that breath that you put in the cold night air, you're breathing something out. And that's what the Bible means when it talks about itself or the Scripture, the same word for Bible, graphe in the Greek language. When we talk about the Bible, And when it talks about itself, it's talking about that it is God-breathed or God-expired, which basically is getting at the idea that the Bible comes from God, although we know from the instrumentality or through the instrumentality of human writers. Now, to get a little bit theological here, and this is important for us because you'll probably be discussing that as part of your care groups this, this coming week, closely aligned with the teaching of the the Bible is being inspired are two words that you have probably heard before, maybe not, the words infallible and inerrant. When we talk about the infallibility of the Bible, we're talking that the Bible is without error in terms of the fundamental nature of the gospel and what it says about the person and work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. When the Bible talks, uh, or when we talk about the Bible as being inerrant, and that's a relatively new term um, just within the last hundred years or so, when we talk about the Bible as being inerrant, we're saying that the Bible is not only without error in terms of its basic gospel message, but all the other details regarding history, science, and what have you. And so basically, what we're saying regarding the Bible, and I want us to understand this from a biblical, theological, and doctrinal standpoint. When we say that the Bible is inspired, we're saying it comes from God through human instrumentality. And because it comes from God, it is infallible. It is inerrant, and it can be completely trusted. Right Now, because of that, I wanted to bring that out from from a kind of doctrinal standpoint, that the Bible is inspired and infallible and inerrant, can be completely trusted, because I want you to understand that Therefore, throughout history, Christians have always prized this book. They've always prized this book. And it's very interesting that when you, for instance, I don't know if you've ever read the Quran. You know, the Quran is written in Arabic, but you can also get it in English. And when I used to work with uh, Muslims during the time of missionary activity of my wife Joy and I a number of years ago, we used to work with Muslims, and they would give us copies of the Quran in English. And we would read it, and I, I notice in the Quran that when it talks about Jews and Christians, and this goes back centuries, Jews and Christians were known as people of the book. They were known as this book. They had a high reverence for this book, understanding it came from God through the instrumentality of human writers, and they wanted to know this book, and they studied this book, and they understood this book, and they understood the nature of this book for the formation of our spirits our hearts and our minds in drawing us to Jesus, keeping us in Jesus, and having us over time look like Jesus. So, with that having been said, I want to get into the passage now. Um, if people came to this church and started worshiping with us for a while, would they, would they look around and they go, hmm, these are people that have a high regard for the Bible. These are people of the book. And and would they say that about us, not only in terms of a whole body, but would they say that about us individually as they begin to interact with us? They are people of the book. They, they appreciate this book, and they have a high reverence for this book, um, not only through the preaching... And not only through the care groups that the church has, the small groups the church has, but when I get to meet with these people individually, I see that they are people of the book in terms of how that book plays into their memories and their convictions and their consciences and their conversations. Or would they just say, well, these are people that just sit in worship, they do what they're told. Because I tell you what, far too often in conservative circles, people are simply taught what they're supposed to believe, This is what you're supposed to believe. These are supposed to be your convictions. Now follow it. There's a certain truth to that, I suppose, but we also need to be independent enough that we ourselves read the Word, that we're just not told what to believe, but we search the Scriptures ourselves. I want to get back into that a little bit later on uh, in the sermon. Okay, I want to set the context for this. Very quickly, this is written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Um, by the Apostle Paul to a young pastor named Timothy. And the Apostle Paul is an older pastor, and this is what you oftentimes get in the church, and this summer probably we will have that as well. Um, I've been asked by um, our uh, federational seminary to come alongside uh, a pastor who's in his first year of seminary and just kind of mentor him along for a couple of weeks. There's there's a history behind that. That's That's what Paul did with this young pastor, Timothy. Okay? And he mentored Timothy, and he taught Timothy by word and example, and as part of the context of this passage, the Apostle Paul warned this young pastor, Timothy, about certain individuals in the church, he refers to them as actually false teachers, counterfeit teachers, that were seeking to sow discord and disinformation in the church. And he says, you need to watch out for them, and you need to stand against them, and you need to protect yourself, and you need to protect your flock against their teaching and their example. How do you do that? The Apostle Paul says, by remaining true to this book. He's saying to the young pastor, Timothy, Timothy, you have, he says three things to Timothy about this book. First of all, he says, you know what, you have learned this book. And you have learned it, if you notice in the verses leading up to this. He says, from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, referring to what I have in my hand. He says, from childhood. If you go back to the original language, is something interesting. The, the, the word oftentimes in the Greek language that is used for childhood is actually the word brephē, which really refers to a very young child, even an infant, so Paul's saying to Timothy, from basically from your earliest of years, from infancy, you have known this book. There are a number of children here who were born and raised into Christian families and who received the sign and seal of covenant baptism. And parents promised their children and promised God above all that they were going to teach your children the doctrines of the faith, teach them this book. That's what happened to Timothy. He's taught from infancy. So Paul says to Timothy, You have learned this book from infancy, from the earliest years of childhood, and you have become familiar with it through your, and this is interesting, through your mother and your grandmother. And some of us might say, Well, hey, man, where was the dad in this? The Bible says, I don't know if you know this, but Timothy's father was a Greek. That means, in our modern day language, Timothy's father was outside the faith, he wasn't a Christian. So, what happens when you have a husband and a wife who are not agreed in the faith? One is a believer, one is not. One is a Christian, one is not. The responsibility is upon either the woman or the believing husband to teach the child to walk in faith. And that's what Timothy's mother and grandmother did, taught him the faith. So, Paul says, from the earliest years, you've known this book, you've become familiar with it through your mother and your grandmother, and praise God through the work of the Spirit in your life. You just didn't receive it as information, but you became convicted of it. You believe this. Now, on the basis of that, Timothy, stand on it. Stand on it for the the blessing of yourself, but also for the blessing of your congregation. All right. Then we come finally, Paul underscores the importance of the Bible in Timothy's life and the congregation's life by saying in verse 16 and 17, all of Scripture graphe, referring to the Bible, is breathed out, is inspired by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, and so forth. Basically, again, he's saying the Bible comes from God through the instrumentality of human writers, and it can be trusted, but also this. Notice one of the operative words in this passage is the word profitable, which clues us in to the fact that the Bible is also a source of, for our profitability, or our benefit. It is a source that comes from God for the sake of our formation and our growth in Christ. And we take a look at verses 16 and 17, and I'll keep it it kind of brief this morning. There's just four basic ways that the Bible is a blessing to us in terms of our spiritual formation. The first way that the Bible forms us in Christ is by... Teaching us basically what it says. You can't believe something and you can't be grounded in something unless you're unless you understand it, unless you're knowledgeable of it. We are living in a day and an age where there just are many, many people who call themselves Christians, but are rather ignorant of the Bible. And oftentimes, because they're ignorant of the Bible, they're ignorant of the, the very basics of. Christian faith, and when that happens, and you end up becoming a person of compromise. That's never good. The Bible wants us to know what's in it. God wants us to know in it. We need to know the teachings of the Bible. Now, I want you, I want you to listen closely to what I'm about to say. Oftentimes, um, people, either when they're first beginning to explore the Bible, because maybe they didn't grow up as a Christian... Or even I find people who have been raised in the Christian faith and would call themselves Christians, oftentimes they approach the Bible as um, a book of kind of historical facts or a book of morality or a book that kind of contains little devotional bits that we read here and there and then we begin to feel good about our walk with Jesus Um, or just a a book that contains certain teachings of the Christian faith that we're supposed to understand. And as you learn the Christian faith, you hear about things like Bible terms, like justification, sanctification, predestination. What are those? Well, I know where to go in my Bible for that. That's kind of the way I read my Bible when I was in my early 20s. Now, it's true, the Bible does teach us about history. The Bible teaches us about morality. The Bible does provide us certain devotional bits that are designed to form us in Christ. That's all true. But most fundamentally, and I don't know if you ever think about the Bible in this way, but most fundamentally, the Bible is a story. What people call a narrative. It's a grand sweeping story of the world, and it's the true story of the world, so that when you read the Bible, you begin with Genesis and you end with Revelation. And within the pages between Genesis and Revelation, you have a grand story that begins with the creation of the world, then the fall of the world and why the world is in such a mess that it is today. Then the Bible provides the good news of the rescue or the deliverance of the world through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And finally, the Bible teaches us, especially in that last book, the book of Revelation, that one day there's going to be a complete restoration of the world. Again, primarily through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It's most fundamentally a story. And it's that story, as we become familiar with it, that begins to shape what we call our worldview. Our way of looking at the world and our way of living in the world. When you came here this morning, and when I started preaching about the Bible, did you, did you think in your mind, oh, that's a book primarily that is a, it's a story, it's a true story of the world? Or did you look at the Bible in a different way? It's important that we understand that the Bible most fundamentally is a story, because we get all kinds of competing stories in the world that we live. And, and these, these competing stories, these competing views of reality in this world in which we are living are not neutral. They're not small and have no impact in our lives. They affect our minds, they affect our hearts, they affect the way that, that we look at ourselves, the way that we look at the world. A lot of times we get the stories through this, don't we? When I go on my phone, I check my texts, I check my emails, but also every time I go on the phone and I go online and I research something or I look at something, the same thing with you, every time you go on the phone, I want you to think about this this next week, every time you go on your phone, you go online, you're getting a story, a different narrative, a competing narrative. I don't. I don't know what your practice is with your, your children, kids. I don't know if you have access to a phone, like an iPhone or something like that, or not. Of course, there's a lot written about you know protecting our kids from what's online. Why? Because of those competing narratives. Let me let me ask you this: what kind of what kind of story are you being shaped by? Is it a story? Is for your benefit? For your enslavement, is a story that's true, or a story that's bogus? Is a story that's drawing you to Christ, or is a story that's drawing you away from Christ? There's only one true story. There's only one story that benefits us and teaches us about reality, about our need for God, our need to walk with him found in this book. It's always been found in this book. True story of the world. Okay, we got to move on. Be a little quick with these other ones. This, the, the Bible is not only forms us by its teaching, the Bible also forms us by guarding us. Guarding us against false narratives. False stories. False ways of living and thinking. Um, the word that's used in the Bible here is the word after teaching reproof. Reproof. A proof is a reproof. Is, is in a sense, it's a test, to determine if something's right or wrong. A man named John Calvin said that the, the Bible is like um, is like. Uh, what I, yeah, I don't know if I can grab it out of here. The Bible is like my glasses. I usually take them off for preaching, but he, John Calvin talks about the Bible as as the lens by which we get to see something more clearly. Now you're a little bit more clear, otherwise you're just a little bit fuzzy, but not so bad. Kids, do you ever think about the Bible as putting on glasses so that when you read it and then you look at the world, you're able to see things more clearly and more accurately? That's what the Bible's supposed to do. And as we see things more clearly, it's actually guarding us from the false narratives and the false stories that we see around us in the world. See how practical the Bible is in that regard. It's like it's like it's like this, it's whereby you're able to see a, a true five dollar bill from a false dollar bill, a uh, five dollar bill. And you could say you could you could take this out and you could take a look at it and you go, and isn't it interesting? With the dollar bills, you see how much work they put into um, countering counterfeit bills. I mean, this is why this thing is so complex, right? So how do you determine if this is a counterfeit or a genuine dollar bill? A lot of people think, well, um, I'm just going to look really closely at the counterfeit dollar bill, and then I'm going to be able to determine, I think I'm going to see some things that are not quite right, and you put it in there, and sometimes you do that, and you kind of go, oh, yeah, yeah, I can see it. Actually, what experts tell you is the way you figure out what a counterfeit dollar bill, if a dollar bill is, is counterfeit or not, is not by looking at the counterfeit dollar bill, but by looking at the genuine dollar bill. Becoming so acquainted with the genuine dollar bill that you go, oh yeah, that's I see that that's counterfeit. That's what Christians did years ago in determining truth for error. Let me give you an example of that from the Book of Acts. There was a time where two men, Paul and Silas, were were speaking about Jesus, and the the Christian faith was spreading throughout the world. And they they spoke about Jesus, and they and they, they preached from the Bible in a in a Greek city called Thessalonica. And after Thessalonica, what they did is they went to a place called Berea. And when they went to Berea, the Bible says this, that the Bereans were more noble-minded than the Thessalonians. And why was that? Because they received the teaching of Paul and Silas with great eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily in order to determine if what they were hearing from Paul and Silas was actually true. They were not passive. Christians years ago were not passive, so that when they heard the preaching, they just go, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, I understand, I believe that. You know, they, were, they had their own Bibles. They had Bibles in their hands, and they were examining the Scriptures to see if, what, if the preaching was actually accurate, true, or not. I hope we become more and more like that, right? We examine the Scriptures, become people of the book, Right? In Phoenix, every once in a while, we would have uh, individuals come to our front door, two individuals at a time with a briefcase. Who am I talking about? Jehovah Witnesses, they come to the door, right? And then they want to talk about something, They want to talk about how bad blood transfusions are, or what happens at the end of the age, you know, in the book of Revelation, all that kind of stuff. And I said, stop. And and actually, I try to control the conversation, because they want to control it. I'm like, you're on my turf. I control the conversation. We're going to talk about one thing. We're going to talk about Jesus. We're limited to that. So we start talking about Jesus. And every, every time, at some point, I will ask them this question out of curiosity. Um, were you born and raised Jehovah Witness? Every time. Every time I've talked with them, they said, no, I used to be a Baptist. Or I was raised in the Catholic church. What does that say? It tells us that very likely... They were never properly rooted in the Scriptures or they were not really rooted in Christian doctrine on the basis of the Scriptures so that when error came their way, they succumbed to it and they switched sides. Let me ask you this. Ask yourself a personal question. Do you, do you feel competent in your understanding of the Bible, the contents of the Bible? Do you feel competent in discerning truth from error on the basis of the Bible. And even more positively, the Bible says that we're able we should be able to give an account of the hope that is within us. To anyone who asks, do you feel able to do that? Because a lot of times people in terms of evangelism feel very uncomfortable in sharing their faith. Why? Because they're a fear of being rejected? Sometimes, sometimes there's a fear because they don't know their Bibles well enough. What am I going to say? I don't know what to say. If they counter me, I don't know what to say, right? People of the book, people of the book. Scripture teaches us. The scripture guards us. The Scripture also forms us in Christ by correcting us when we need it. Scripture is there for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for reforming us. Sometimes we have it. Brothers and sisters, I have it as a pastor too. We all at times grow somewhat spiritually dry. Maybe it's because of sins in our lives. Maybe it's because we're, we're, we, have, we, are, we have not taken the component parts that God has given us to grow us in Christ. We're not praying. We're not reading. We're, we're, we're not exercising hospitality. We're not sharing our faith. And all these things, we start becoming dry over time. Have you ever had it then where you go, you know what, I need to get back to the Bible, and you read a portion of the Bible, and you kind of go, you felt better after that. You felt like the Lord was warming your heart, stirring your heart, and drawing, to your, drawing himself to you. Right? The Bible, God gives us the Bible for that very purpose, to correct us, to, to, to shift us, to change course. And that's not only if you're in the Christian faith. That also goes for if you are outside of the Christian faith. I cannot tell you how many times I have dealt with people in the ministry who, are, who have shared stories with me. Some men, even in seminary or studying for the ministry, who didn't grow up in the Christian faith. And the interesting thing is, they, somebody gave a Bible and they started reading the Bible and all it took was like one verse of the Bible and it just hit them. Like somebody just slapped them upside the head, you know, like boom, their, their eyes were opened up. That's the power of the Bible when the Spirit combines in it and starts to help us to change course in our lives. I'll give you a very quick example of that. Her name, I think stories are important to illustrate things. Her name was, and I'll be quick, Jessica Roberts. She grew up in what we call a spiritually apathetic home. Didn't know Jesus. Didn't really, God was just a concept, okay? And you can get away with that for a while until difficulty comes into your life. And difficulty came into her life when the young man to whom she was married, his name was Tell, he was a soldier in Iraq and he was killed on the battlefield. Suddenly, she's got this five-month baby, no husband anymore, he dies on the battlefield and she was devastated and her spiritual apathy played, or, uh, played no role at that point. It, it, she, she needed comfort and she didn't know where to turn to that comfort. So... So somebody, uh, people who knew her, started to give her sympathy cards. And on some of those, some of those sympathy cards, you know, if you've ever received some, um, sometimes there's Bible verses in there. And she found a Bible verse from Psalm 139 that basically says, "Oh, um, "Oh Lord, where where can we flee from your Spirit?" And she was reading that, and and she she didn't know that that was a reference in Psalm 139 to the Spirit of God. She thought it was is in reference to like dead people and her husband. You know, people think, oh, my husband's gone, but you know, he's with me always, I feel him and all that. You know? So she, she thought that's what it meant. So the point is she started reading the Bible, but I mean she was completely off in terms of what it had to say. Yet, yet God was stirring in her something. And so she started to read other Psalms in the Bible And God was working in her and beginning to, as the Bible says here, began to correct her, began to help her shift. Now, A.V. guys, would you put that quote out from Jessica Roberts for just a moment? This is what she said eventually. She says, I could see in the pages of the Psalms that God was real, a massive God who the writers of the Psalms cried out to in their despair. And I could see that He responded. Slowly, I began to look less for my husband in the verses and more for the one who held me in my grief. God continued to lead me into the Psalms until I couldn't ignore him anymore. God was showing up in my despair and breathing life into me when all I wanted to do was die. God continues to write his story through me, and his grace abounds. The one I was apathetic toward now shows me he is the great I am, and now he is my everything, and I am grateful. How did that shift happen? By the grace of God and the Spirit of God working through the instrumentality of this book. He was correcting her. He was shifting course, stirring something in her, and ultimately drawing her to himself. Listen to this never never underestimate the power of the bible and the power of the gospel for you and for anybody whom the lord brings to us okay and finally this there's the word equipping here all scriptures breathed out by god and profitable for teaching for reproof and for correction and to equip us in righteousness for training In righteousness, that is the way of God, so that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. The Bible equips us by shaping us, informing us, not only in a proper way of living for the glory of God, but ultimately informing us in the very image or the likeness of Jesus. That should be the goal of every one of us. I don't care if you are five years old. I don't care if you're 15 or 150. The goal always in our lives, and this should be our prayer, and this is why we read the Bible, to be formed more and more into the likeness of Christ so that in time we may be his hands and his feet and his voice in the world. Because the world doesn't need more people like it. The world needs people who are like Jesus because only when we're like Jesus are we truly beautiful and attractive and winsome. So I want to end with this. Bear with me just two more minutes. I want you to ask yourself some personal questions. First of all, at this very moment, you count yourself as a person of this book. I'm not asking you if you count yourself as one who is somewhat acquainted with this book, but are you really a person of this book in your heart? Do you love this book? You love Christ above all, but you also love this book that displays Christ in all His beauty to you. If you love this book, how often do you crack open this book? How often do you really crack open the book? And if you crack open this book, how are you reading this book? Are you you reading it as just kind of a a book of morality to help you to know how to live in a good way? Do you read it as a book of history or just little devotional bits? Do you read this book like I read it in my early 20s, where I really wanted to know the basic doctrines of the Christian faith? And so when people would interact with me, I would say, if you want to know predestination, go to Ephesians 1. If you want to know about the doctrine of justification, you go to Romans chapter such and such, Romans 5. If you want to understand sanctification, you go to Romans chapter 6 and also Romans 8. That's how I use the book. There's a a place for that. But do you read this as a life-shaping story? It's shaping you, okay? Um, and, 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 and is it your desire that as you read this book, yourself, am I reading this book in such a way that I find myself being steered away more from church talk, you ever notice that? We very easily get involved in church talk and church policies and what's right and what's wrong, what's good, what's not. And then after a while, you realize, you know what? I rarely hear the name of Jesus. I rarely hear anybody incorporating certain scriptures into the conversation. Is, is, is this book part of your conversations or is it just about church? See, um, And then just This one other question. If you are here this morning and you've never really explored this book, are you willing to do that? Are you willing to just crack open the pages and begin reading? Maybe like the Gospel of John or the book of Matthew that records the The person and life of Jesus. And then also, are you daring enough to do that? Are you a little bit frightened? Are you daring enough to explore what's in the Bible? And also, one final thing, listen carefully to this. Are you prepared to experience what may well happen to you as you dive into this book? Are you prepared to have the Spirit of God warm your heart to Jesus and change your life I mean, completely change your life. Personal questions to ask ourselves. In the end, may may we all be like Jesus who said this. He said, man does not live by bread alone, that is, the things of this world. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And where do we find those words that proceed from the mouth of God? Right here right here. May we be a people of the book. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this book. We thank you for the Word of God made flesh, namely Jesus, but we also thank you for the Word written. And Father, we pray that together more and more you may warm us toward the Scriptures and that you would use our care groups, especially this coming week to warm us to the scriptures, to the Bible, to know it, to know the contents, to love it, to embrace it, and to grow through it so that more and more we might be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. Father, in a sense, that's a tall order, but you're a great God. And you tell us in the Bible that when our motives are right and what we ask for is pure, that you love To answer it in a way that oftentimes exceeds what we even ask or imagine. For you are a generous God. We thank you for that. Lord, bless this prayer and answer it, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to respond together.